don't go from a, a, a benign beginning to unconscious uh, without without going through some other stages before that. I think the idea here is that these are two diagnoses that don't show up very often, but that you really need to have uh, your antenna up all the time. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it is the December 2018 issue of Risk Management Monthly. Uh, I'm with my two compatriots who are in sunny California here in Michigan. The frost is on the pumpkins. Uh, It's worse than that. The children are roasting chestnuts over flaming winos just outside the emergency department. It's just that kind of day here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. You know, Rick, you in your email to me, you said you're working on your swimming pool. We have those in Michigan, except we call them skating rinks, uh, and they're doing very nicely. Thank you. Uh, for all you listeners, we have a real treat today, and I know it's always a treat when we have somebody other than Rick and I, but we have David Talon. Uh, Rick, would you like to introduce Dr. Talon for the for the listeners? Well, David and I met probably 20 years ago, uh, UCLA resident, I believe. Yes, David? Um, actually, a few more years than that, but I was a resident. That's right. And, uh, and uh, David got, got into a niche. He became a niche expert. And I've rec- really recommended to emergency physicians who wanted to have a career that was a little bit more di- diversified than seeing physician, patients solely is to find a, a niche that nobody else has really found and get to be really good at it. And David's niche was infectious diseases. And he basically has precluded anybody from doing it except colleagues in his department. Um, and with reg- and you know, Amal is, is Dr. Cardiology. Everybody knows that. Don't bother taking cardiology. It's already a, he already has it. Uh, I don't know of uh, Dr. Trauma. I'm sure there's a Dr. Trauma. Al Sacchetti, maybe Dr. Peds. Uh, yeah. So, so that's a very cool thing to do. David's expertise is in infectious diseases. He's written a ton of papers. A goodly number of them have gotten into the New England Journal. This is serious stuff, uh, kind of things that he's been producing. And I think, David, didn't you organize a group of emergency departments to do uh, surveillance and uh, to collectively do studies together? Yeah, that's right. And um, in 1995, we got a grant from the uh, Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, to put together a network of large emergency departments across the United States and use those emergency departments to conduct surveillance and research on what was called emerging infections. And through that, actually, we were part of the discovery of the emerging epidemic of MRSA infections. Yeah, and I remember there were a couple of really, really important and famous papers that you did. One of them was uh, a, a bunch of years ago, and it dealt with meningitis, which at the time was a really big deal. And the issue was, um, how quickly do you need to give antibiotics? And uh, David, you did a paper that kind of addressed that, and from uh, it had substantial medical legal consequences. Uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. That was actually, I started as a resident when I worked with um, our friend Jerry Hoffman. And at the, at the time, emergency physicians were being criticized if they hadn't started antibiotics within 30 minutes of a 
child or a patient's presentation who turned out to have bacterial meningitis. And so uh, what we did was we actually looked at cases admitted through two emergency departments uh, of presumed and then confirmed bacterial meningitis just to look at you know, where the time went and how, how long things uh, usually took. Um, I don't think there was one case um, in a series of over 120 where the patient got antibiotics within 30 minutes of the time of presentation. And you know, we, I, yeah, I, I think that, uh, that the, the way you always beat that 30-minute criteria is when the kids are at triage, put a little bacitracin on their lips. And so <laughs> then they've been given antibiotics within the 30 minutes. Now, are they the exact right antibiotics? No, but if it's a yes or no box check, you know, you can always beat the system some way, David. Although this paper was important because yes. there was this issue about meningitis. Uh, most of you listening now don't know meningitis because it's gone away because of the uh, immunologists who've, who've kind of taken all the fun out of infectious diseases because they're, they're not any infectious diseases anymore in these little kitties. But in any case, and the most recent paper that you did, which I thought was also a um, a really important paper, I also think it was a New England Journal paper where you talked about the use of antibiotics in abscesses. And you kind of basically told the world that what we had been told in the past, that antibiotics don't matter, uh, basically matters in a small subset of patients. Do you want to basically give us the, the, the lowdown on that paper? Right. Um, I mean, this has been dogma, surgical dogma, that to cut is to cure. So uh, I was taught, and I believe, that if you could drain a, a cutaneous to skin abscess, then the patient did not need antibiotics. In fact, you know, you'd kind of be criticized for, for giving adjunctive antibiotics if you had a decent drainage in a healthy person. Um, of course, a lot of the things that we assume are true uh, have not really been tested well scientifically. So we got a grant from the National Institutes of Health. Uh, we involved some of the large centers in our uh, network that I referred to, and we conducted a, a, a very um, careful randomized control, control trial uh, among patients with skin abscesses in ERs who got adequate drainage, randomizing patients to either get a, a seven-day course of trimethoprim, sulfa, or placebo. Then we followed them for six weeks. And, um, you know, there's there's kind of a fun point in time when you're a researcher where you get the results, right? And you're the first one to look at them. And uh, Greg, Greg Moran and I, my colleague at UCLA, had that moment. And when we looked at the results, we were as surprised as anyone. Um, and, and it turned out that there was a significant benefit overall to prescribing antibiotics, not only to cure the initial lesion, but to prevent recurrences through six weeks. We found a lot of other interesting sort of positive benefits associated with antibiotics, um, including um, a reduced frequency of hospitalization. So a small percentage of those patients got sick enough to require readmission or, or admission after the initial uh, outpatient emergency department visit. And there were even fewer similar infections in household members. So though overall to the individual, the, uh, the 
benefit of of cure for the initial lesion seems small, and there was a high rate of of resolution just with drainage. There were quite a quite a few benefits that were associated with antibiotic treatment to the whole group, and um, and of course that completely changed how we think about the role of infection and abscesses and 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 um, the effect of antibiotics in circumstances like that. Now, yeah. David, David's on this program today, by the way, not only because he's boarded in internal medicine and emergency medicine and did a fellowship in infectious disease, but because he's been to court a few times, and I've actually been to court with David. Um, it's, uh, he's a, a wonderful witness. He understands everything there is to know about going to court. And so, David, today, we not only want your science knowledge— but you're sort of street smarts as to what keeps people in or out of court. Uh, David and I testified on the for the defense on a case in Mississippi one time, and uh, David was just brilliant on the stand. So, David, not just science, but but the skinny on how you stay away from the courtroom is what we want out of you today. Okay, I'll stop being so nerdy and let's get down to what we're here to talk about. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so Rick, can I go ahead and give him our first case here? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So uh, now everybody who listens to this program has heard a variant of this case probably 20 times over the last 12 years, but here it is a 58 year old diabetic with acute onset back pain. Ah! Rick, do we know the diagnosis already? We're yeah. getting there. We're getting yeah. there. Uh, discharge diagnosis, non-traumatic back pain, discharged with, uh, with some sort of symptomatic care, returns 10 days later with continued back pain and altered mental status. Uh, is there any good thing in a diabetic that can give you continuous back pain and now altered mental status. If there is, I want to know what it is because it all sounds bad to me. So they were ad admitted with a diagnosis of sepsis. The sources are not identified for five days when the MRI is done reveals a low thoracic spinal epidural abscess Although decompressive surgery uh, was done immediately, I always love that when they say immediately. That means within the next 24 to 48 hours, I'm sure. And uh, now she is left paraplegic. Her complaints are, in the court, I'm diabetic. I had unexplained back pain and neck pain and sepsis, and it took too long for them to do an MRI and to find the diagnosis. What do you think about that, David? Well, let's start with the initial visit. And I, I don't know if the initial emergency physician was a defendant. He probably he or she was probably at least initially named, right? And so the question would be, was there an opportunity before the patient was septic or paralyzed um, or had complications to identify uh, the diagnosis of spinal epidural abscess? Um, hey, look, there's lots of diabetics. I don't think that's a big clue to this diagnosis. But the thing that strikes me is that there is this new onset of back pain, and there's not a good explanation for it, um, at least from what you've told me. So uh, the most common site of back pain is the lower back by far. And then the next most common site 
is the neck because of its mobility. But it's, it is unusual if the back pain starts in the thoracic region. And the thoracic region is the most common region where you find ep epidural infections. And it's not for any other reason than that that's the longest part of the spinal cord. So there's the greatest opportunity for the infection to go there. So I'd kind of like to know some more information. I'd like to know a little bit more about this history of back pain. Many 58-year-olds actually have had prior episodes of back pain, where it was, if it truly was unexplained. And then the, the next thing that's very important, are there any symptoms that would suggest infection or, or neurological compromise? I well, unfortunately, the, uh, this is a case that was um, stolen, I mean, borrowed from uh, Chuck Pilcher. Pilcher has a, a monthly product that he gives out free for crying out loud, free. Yeah, we got to stop him. Yeah. yeah, it's called medical malpractice insights. In the show notes, we'll give you the uh, link uh, so that you can become uh, on Chuck's list. So it, it's basically not a very um, detailed. You don't have look a lot of all. detail. I no, but but the idea here is is that uh, uh, this patient they they have back pain, which is often attributed to, well, I must have been lifting a box. I was working out in the yard. There, there's always the idea where we got to put some etiology on this or, uh, to uh, try to explain why we have it. And uh, that off, often leads people down the garden path because the doctors are saying, well, that's uh, okay. That's well, it's a musculoskeletal kind of thing. When in fact, person really did not do it uh, under those circumstances. The other thing in this case was, um, uh, and Chuck, who reviews a fair number of cases, basically says that the first doctor usually uh, gets a pass. And the first doctor in this case did get a pass uh, on this case because I guess there wasn't enough at, at the time to suggest that he uh, was uh, culpable. But this case did not have a a good outcome. Um, In all fairness here, Rick, let's, let's point out the fact, as Dave said, there's 30, 40 million diabetics in the United States. They are going to come in for something. You got to have something to kick this off. Were they febrile? Uh, did they have a positive neurologic finding of some kind? And what I'd like to point out in this case is there are 10 days before between leaving the emergency department and coming back in coma, <laughs> yeah. somebody should have seen this patient, a brother, an uncle, their, their, their spouse going downhill. You don't go from a, a, a benign beginning to unconscious, uh, without, without going through some other stages before that. Uh, you know, I, I, I would like to be uh, critical of this case, the first guy, but it's very hard, as uh, was pointed out, without more findings. I can't take every diabetic and work them up for a uh, an abscess in their spine. But here's my question. So, and I didn't quite get to this. You're right, Greg. Uh, being diabetic isn't a distinguishing risk for, for much of anything. But what is a distinguishing risk with regard to this diagnosis is a risk of having a bloodstream infection. Right. Because other than having a complication of back surgery and getting a back infection directly, the, the risk here is a risk of getting bacteria in the bloodstream. So I'm, I don't know from what you've told me 
if there was a known risk of that, was the patient an IV drug user? Did they have a chronic intravenous catheter? Were they on dialysis? Uh, is any of that known? Well, I just included this case uh, to just generally uh, get it out there because I, I got to think that you have uh, reviewed a fair number of these cases. Uh, my understanding is they're becoming more and more frequent. Doctors continue to miss these cases and uh, the, the rewards are always uh, big because these yeah. people have, have paralysis or some permanent neurologic problem that costs lots of dollars. And by the way, the reason that it's becoming more frequent is if you watch TV at night, there's got to be 12 different medicines which wet, which end with the term AMAB. All these drugs are given for every damn problem in the world. Your psoriasis, your ulcerative mm -hmm. colitis, your this and your that. And the bottom tagline is... Uh, if you're prone to infection, if you've had tuberculosis, if you've been to the San Juan Key T Valley, you probably shouldn't be on these things because they do lower the, the body's ability to fight infection. And I'm sure, David, you are, are right in the middle of this sort of thing. I mean, is there any disease entity in America where they don't have a, an AMAB as a treatment at this point in time? Yeah, it seems like the focus of this case comes later once the patient returns and they're septic and unconscious, and that that's going to make it difficult to focus on the back as the as the site of the infection. Um, so I it seems like the seems like the ship is sort of sailed on the emergency department care, and this is more of a focus on timely diagnosis once in the hospital. If the patient uh, if the patient's blood cultures grow staph aureus, which they probably did, and there was anyone who could, you know, determine this history of new onset back pain, they, they should have looked at the back sooner. But, you know, it's hard to tell from what we have. Here. Well, it was an $18 million uh, jury uh, verdict. Uh, Dave, what, can you kind of tell us what we need to know to stay out of trouble with this diagnosis based on your experience and what people who are attacking you in terms of the uh, people who are the plaintiffs, uh, what are the cases that they're making and what defenses have been used? Yeah, um, here's why this is a super common emergency department-based malpractice claim, um, this diagnosis. And the common problems are um, where I think the emergency doctors don't recognize that the patient may be in a risk group. We see, you know, thousands of people with back pain, but back pain in someone who's an IV drug abuser or who has a risk for bacteremia or had surgery, now that's a, that's a different animal. And, uh, and so that's the type of patient who probably is going, going to need imaging or have serious consideration of imaging. Um, a lot of these groups, you know, we feel taken advantage of. Um, I think we, we see a lot of people who are drug addicted and sometimes we feel like we're played and, and we don't allow ourselves to also recognize these people at risk of some pretty serious diagnoses and serious diagnoses that we can miss. So that, that I think sometimes comes and clouds, you know, our judgment, which, which um, leads to misdiagnosis. Then I think the imaging uh, among, among is sometimes misunderstood. 
And even though in spinal epidural abscess, there's often vertebral osteomyelitis that might de be detected by a CAT scan, you can miss a spinal epidural abscess if you only order a CAT scan, even with contrast. The, the gold standard test is an MRI and an MRI with contrast. An MRI without contrast can also lead to the radiologist missing this diagnosis. And then maybe the last thing is the extent of your imaging. So while we all think we're, you know, super duper neurologists based on our, you know, few minute exam, um, often the symptoms and our findings don't correlate exactly with the, with the level of the lesion as you might anticipate clinically. So if a patient complains of lower back pain uh, and you're considering this diagnosis, order the MRI with contrast, not only of the area you're most suspicious of, but um, uh, the next level up. And so those would, those would be some of the things that I think, uh, you know, might help us avoid these types of lawsuits. Yeah. All right, Rick, you got another case. Well, uh, yeah, I've got one here related to uh, necrotizing fasciitis, and it's really a, a journal uh, article a, uh, written in the International Journal of Legal Medicine, which um, I'm sure you and I both get. I just don't remember reading this issue, but yep. in, in any case, it's a case series in review of the literature on clinical and medical legal diagnostic challenges. It was written in Italy, but it does have a few points that I think are kind of um, interesting. So what they did in the study is they had people who uh, were alive with the diagnosis and then who died and then who uh, had autopsies, forensic autopsies, because uh, that's what they do over there. And although this is not a huge series of cases, um, it does reaffirm, even in the small number of cases that they had, the ways that people kind of missed this diagnosis. So they had seven cases and all had seven misdiagnoses uh, uh, initially. All of them were considered, uh, four of them were considered post-traumatic pain, <laughs> uh, but there was no trauma. Uh, one of them had a diagnosis of herpes zoster. One of them had a diagnosis of sciatica. One of them was dyspepsia. And three also had on top listed um, uh, pneumonia. The, the uh, record was not particularly helpful in looking for this pain out of proportion thing. And uh, Dave, there's this thing where they add up all of these um, risk lab tests. What, that, what is that? The, the Lernic or something like that? Yeah. They yeah, said it's a that, score. They said that score turned positive a couple hours before these people went, went into shock. So it wasn't a really a... Uh, a uh, it didn't give you a lot of time, time yeah, to respond. David, I, David, I've looked at this score, and it looks to me like flipping a coin would be just about as valuable as this score, because by the time you've got all those numbers back, I mean, the patient's damn near dead, aren't they? Well, let's talk a little bit about this score. It's L-R-I-N-E-C, the Lernex score. And the, the publication was from China, and it involved comparing quite a few hospitalized patients. One group had established necrotizing fasciitis, and the other group had severe skin soft tissue infection, severe enough to admit to the hospital. And so they derived this score. Of course, the, the, in, the, in this research, they're looking at cases with confirmed necrotizing fasciitis, and where we see the patient is where we're wondering, right? Uh, probably at an earlier stage. 
And so it's not clear how the derivation of this score is so helpful to the type of problem that we would face diagnosing a patient who just comes in with a lot of pain to an area, or maybe some other clues, which we'll talk about. There's been several studies subsequently that have sort of said, well, this score isn't quite uh, what it's touted to be. It's not as accurate, but it does include a few variables in there that a lot of times show up on these cases where when you look back in retrospect, they were missed. So it's, it's important to know, like weird things, the sodium drops, um, not unexpectedly, you have high white counts. Uh, in, in this score, they rely on CRP, which is not, you know, kind of a routine test that we do, but it not, not too surprising that inflammatory markers would go up too and the creatinine rises, things like that. I will, I will know when I, when I open my eyes, wherever they send me after this life, whether I've been heaven or hell, because if I'm in hell, I'm back in an ER and every patient I'm going to see that day either has terminal fibromyalgia or uh, necrotizing fasciitis or nothing because I've been through this so many times. And so far uh, of the four or five neck, neck fasci patients I've had over a 40 year career, something went off in my head. They were either, they were too painful when I touched them, something happened. But Rick's point, which he made earlier, was they always have another story. I had one woman who was lifting laundry baskets and came in and said, you know, my muscles and my chest are sore from lifting these baskets. This was a 40-year-old woman who had no other diseases. And so, you know, I'm kind of looking at her. I'm going to give her uh, some uh, Motrin or some Tylenol or something and send her out. And I noticed one thing. She did have a temperature of 101. Well, that didn't make any sense to me. And I'm kind of feeling around again. And I thought, oh, Jesus, God help me if it's that. No, uh, and that's what, I, that's what I see in these cases. You've probably reviewed them or you're describing them in your experience. What are we going to do? I mean, we're in the business of pain, right? It's got to mm -hmm. be the most common single complaint that brings people to the emergency department. Yeah. And often to them, it's the, one of the worst pains they've ever had. That's why they didn't come to the urgent care center to stay home. So a lot of these cases, if you look back, it's it's some crazy story of where, you know, they strain their calf muscle doing something that doesn't quite make sense, which I don't think gets you all the way there. The patient often can sort of try to explain it themselves, but there's some other clue. And so if you find yourself diagnosing <laughs> like a unexplained calf muscle tear and influenza at the same time, you know, maybe you should think to put together the dots, connect the dots a little bit. Um, and I, I think you're describing a case like that. Yep. Yeah, I, think, know, I can't, I can't believe the number of times, you know, again, uh, God's been kind to me because without looking back at the vital signs, I may have put that woman out the door and she went from being tender to being damn near dead in six hours. In fact, my problem was getting the surgeon in before I had the CT scan done of her chest wall. I uh, said, well, I don't know, maybe this, can I see her in the morning? And I said, no, I don't think so. Uh, and I'll tell you, she turned to stool 
in less than six hours. Yeah, and that's a case, you know, in, in medical legal cases, you also need to have a component of causation. That is, if something happened different earlier, better, that the damages would, would be prevented. When patients have necrotizing fasciitis and it affects the trunk, it's hard, it's hard to amputate the trunk, right? Yeah. If you get a necrotizing fasciitis, Greg, get it on your little toe, and we'll take off that little toe and the little toe ring you wear, and yeah, uh, yes. you're going to live. But, you know, um, so I'm not sure in a case like that, it sounds like you deserve a lot of credit for recognizing it. That would certainly be a hard case. But right, where you start to see, you know, an unusual amount of pain, maybe a mechanism that doesn't make sense, and any symptoms or signs or laboratory tests or vital sign abnormalities that don't quite fit, um, you know, you have to consider this stuff. So I you know, I'm, idea, a, I'm an old guy. Yeah. Go ahead, Rick. I think the idea here is that these are two diagnoses that don't show up very often, but that you really need to have uh, your antenna up all the time so that these don't slip through. And uh, being being, you'll never make a diagnosis you don't think of. And so uh, I think that you got to just have an awareness of these two diagnoses in particular because they're they're deadly diagnoses. I had I had uh, David save me about ten years ago. He doesn't know this, but I'd been to hear one of his talks, and he spoke about Lemaire's disease. Uh, and so I work it in the department. A few weeks later, I had somebody who had pain who's running down uh, sternocleidomastoid muscle. And I'm kind of looking, I had him lift his head up and he's just grabbing it and it's a little tender and, you know, I'm watching him for a while. Within two hours, the area is red and it's tender and I would have missed that diagnosis. I wouldn't have thought of it if I hadn't been to that session at ASAP and David mentioned the disease uh, I'm not even sure I knew the disease before I heard his talk. I thought you went to school with Lemire, Greg. Yeah, yes. <laughs> no, you got to remember, I saved, I worked on Lincoln. Uh, I mean, it went a long time ago. And, uh, but Rick's point is very good one. You got to have a few of these things in your head to think about. And um, so, David, I, I, I now thank you for 10 years ago saving my butt. Oh, okay, all right. And listen, David, you, you made us a nice list of things that you uh, would, would, would uh, review with us regarding uh, high-risk situations. You want to just go through this uh, list and, and... Yeah, sure. Happy to. I mean, we've discussed necrotizing fasciitis, spinal epidural abscess. I'd say... You know, sort of another big category is missed sepsis. And, um, you know, nowadays with, uh, you know, CMS and the SEP1 requirements for screening for sepsis and acting where you think there is some type of severe sepsis, uh, almost all the EMRs have some type of screening, which is sort of a, the ghost of SERS criteria, right? And right. we all know about SERS criteria, they're very nonspecific and they don't really tell us that the patient has a serious bacterial infection or that they're going to have a bad prognosis or even have anything different than, you know, just plain old viral syndrome. So that's a, that's a new burden to emergency physicians and nurses because you'll see the sepsis alert thing go positive and heaven forbid you miss a case and you haven't addressed that in your documentation. 
So you have to look for that now. And, and then recognizing sepsis involves a lot of the basic concepts of recognizing anything serious in the emergency room. Unexplained vital signs, laboratory tests that, that uh, you know, don't quite fit. Um, understanding the host, are they, like Greg was referring to, immunocompromised, like so many more people these days, or at risk of a bloodstream infection, like we were talking about with spinal epidural abscess. Uh, but I, I think with regard to sepsis, I think the screening criteria that get embedded in EMRs are a new challenge to us and one that, you know, where we have to go through the charts and tailor our documentation to address those if they're positive. Now, you guys, any anything, you know, in terms of your discussions and review of cases of sepsis in general that you'd add? Well, I'll tell you this. Over the years, as I looked at severe diabetics, particularly the homeless, particularly drug abusers, uh, particularly the elderly, if you don't do a real exam on the patients, there's always somebody who wants to put them in a bed and not take their clothes off. Uh, the number one spot on a diabetic that they do not sense early on because they've got their peripheral neuropathy is the bottom of their feet. My, my, I probably picked up in my career six people who were septic from lesions on their feet that they didn't even know they have. So if we have to repeat this on this show for the hundredth time, actually take a look at people. Uh, and I know the residents don't want to do that stuff anymore. And nurses don't want to undress people. But when you've got a complaint and they've got a little temperature and, and you don't know, by the way, half those diabetics who I looked at and found this on didn't even know they were diabetic. <laughs> I had him do a finger stick on one guy and it was 800. He didn't feel that it was bad at all. He always felt bad. And so uh, he had no idea with an 800 glucose that he actually had diabetes. David, uh, yeah, uh, isn't there some issues now with regard to this sepsis thing? Like um, the Infectious Disease Society of America is not agreeing with uh, the, the government about uh, the certain criteria here. Is there, there's, uh, there's some... Uh, confusion here about what we're doing. Uh, isn't that true? Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. So you, you guys all know about the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. And ASAP, right. you know, sort of joined all the specialties that supported those recommendations, which um, looking back, ironically, almost all of the recommendations were wrong and not subsequently supported by scientific evidence. But aside from that, <laughs> yeah. Um, Everybody, diseases, everybody, yeah. they said everybody needed an immediate central pressure monitoring system and all. You know, this is people who came in with, uh, on their basis, somebody with a bad uh, strep throat would have met the criteria. Oh, yeah. And, you they're, know, they're putting in a central line. They recommended activated protein C. That turned to be turned out to be dangerous and withdrawn from the market. Steroids were withdrawn. Tight glucose control was withdrawn. Um, you know, early goal-directed therapy didn't seem to be any different than usual care. So we could go on. But the, what I was, the part of the story is the Infectious Diseases Society didn't sign up with the surviving sepsis campaign. I think initially because they were concerned about relations with industry supporting the whole 
you know, initiative. But most recently, they, they've taken issue with the surviving sepsis campaign, which only has now one thing that they can feel pretty confident about and recommending, which is timely broad-spectrum antibiotics if you suspect sepsis, which is now more defined as severe sepsis, right, or septic yeah. shock. And so the IDSA has pushed back and said, you know, the only reasonable evidence that more timely antibiotics, and here in the ER, we're talking like hours, right? Right. It's with people with septic shock. And even that, that's kind of a maybe, right? And they said, well, you know, if we're, that's, that's the only group where we think um, you have to really rush to give antibiotics. Otherwise, IDSA said, we think patients should be evaluated more carefully. We should, you know, really consider whether this is a bacterial infection and they need antibiotics at all. Or if they have a bacterial infection, it could be more narrow spectrum. And of course, they're their emphasis is antibiotic stewardship. So well, there, even on antibiotics, you know, there is not a general consensus among respected professional societies with some of the with the remaining pillar of the surviving sepsis campaign. So you can't go wrong with water, uh, depending on which fluid you want it to be, whether it's lactated ringers or saline. That battle has gone on for the last 50 years. Uh, but if you gave them 30 per kilo of a fluid and started one or two broad-spectrum antibiotics, you probably can't go wrong in the pursuit. But uh, I haven't seen anything else, water and antibiotics, beyond those two that, that really we can agree upon. We, even with water, we don't know how much water to give, how much water to give before we give pressors. Should we give less water and pressors sooner? There's studies on that. Um, we've really, I'm sorry to say, made no progress, except for the fact that we are keeping track of new antibiotic resistance, and we're almost keeping up in terms of the antibiotics we have to anticipate that. And sure of that, we're, we're still in the dark. Well, we haven't made progress, but we've elevated to such a high level. Our, our ignorance is at such a high level now that we can carry on a, a, different, a different level of discussion. And you can always have some expert show up and say, oh, that ignorant emergency physician, if he'd only done the following things. I mean, I hope we've squashed some of those people because I've had to c come up against them and, and challenge their their uh, their literature base for these things, and I'll tell you, it is all over the map. And there's nothing as bad as having a professional society come down on the side of these are the ten things you need to do, uh, and have them read those in court. I was I was very upset by some of the uh, some of the initial suggestions first out of the box that uh, you know say becoming a sepsis expert in your hospital became like a life's mission to some of these people. Well, it seems yeah. that one of the things that's going on here is that there's a growing gap between what uh, people want us to do, mostly CMS, in terms of the very specific outline of evaluation and treatment that they, uh, and timeframes that they've developed. And on the other side of the equation, you know, David's assertion that uh, a lot of this is hard to defend. Yep. Yes. David, and uh, what other things on this list uh, here intrigue you? Well, I'm, I'm interested in, in your guys' perspective on, on this fairly common 
area of uh, ED malpractice with regard to infectious disease, the patient who presents with a kidney stone that then becomes complicated by infection, a kidney stone with complete obstruction of a ureter and an infection behind it, that is a that is a lethal combination that will not be treated with any amount of fluid you believe in, even uh, rapid and appropriate effective antibiotics. That's a situation where you have to get drainage uh, of the kidney. And those patients rapidly progress to death or they get this sort of uh, type of septic shock that leads to uh, sometimes multiple limb amputations. So it's it's a terrible, terrible uh, infection. So I, I've I've reviewed a number of these cases, even done liter- liter- uh, some research in this area, and I find that off or often the problem is, uh, and you can tell me if you think this is a problem, that an emergency physician presented with a case that seems like acute nephrolithiasis will get a urinalysis as well as imaging and will ignore a urinalysis finding of, uh, that would be consistent with infection, an elevated number of white cells in the urine or, ni- or nitrate positivity. And, um, and that, be- that becomes the focus of the malpractice claim, that infection wasn't identified mm-hmm. and treated early and uh, urological consultation wasn't obtained. You know, I've done a dozen of these cases and uh, the big mistake because I'm, I'm an anti-test doctor, and I admit that up front. But if you're going to test anything on a patient with recurrent stones, if it's your first stone, yeah, I'm going to do uh, a study. I'll do a CT because I want to look at your vessels as well to make sure I'm not missing another disease. But somebody who's having a repeat stone problem, um, I don't necessarily need a CT, but I do need a urine because I think if it's uh, two red cells, okay, I'm fine. If it's a lot of white cells and some bacteria, uh, that's a call to the urologist about uh, further intervention. And if they have abnormal vital signs, the urologist is probably coming in to see that case. That's sort of my opinion on it at this point in time. But I don't want everybody to think that every stone patient needs a repeat CT if they're having their usual stone. Well, I think what David's uh, focusing on here is something that uh, I must admit, David, uh, this was not something that I kind of uh, was aware of as I should have been, that the idea is that Yes, a urine is done in these cases, but the, the focus of that urinalysis is really red cells, no red cells, uh, to help confirm and make you feel better. Yes, that's the diagnosis, even though we know a substantial subset of these people don't have to have red cells. But eight percent don't have red cells, right? You know, looking at the white cells on on the other hand, the nitrates and and uh, that that was never my focus when I looked at the urine. And I think in retrospect, that was a mistake. Now I must admit, you know, these, uh, infections, uh, at least in my experience, were not, were not, uh, something very common. And as a, and that, that's probably one of the reasons I didn't even focus on the white cells in these cases, but it certainly is a nice logical progression that if you had these, when you came in and they were ignored, and now three days later, you've got you've got a fever. 
it's easy to go back and say, well, doctor, aren't these the findings of a urine infection? And uh, you'd have to say, well, yes, they were. Now this person has this nasty pyelonephritis that you uh, could have uh, tried to nip in the bud and you didn't do it and pay the money. Well, we, we wondered, you know, maybe the stone causes, you know, it causes pain, must cause inflammation. And those white cells are nonspecific and the, they don't, aren't really associated with infection. So um, let me talk a little bit about the research we did. We, we took all patients presenting at Olive with acute nephrolithiasis presentation. It's not pyelonephritis, not cystitis. They came in with pain, looked like it was a kidney stone, was confirmed to be a kidney stone. And we, we looked at their urinalysis and we cultured all of them. And we found that the urinalysis findings of pyuria and nitrite, uh, the same ones that we used to tell if a woman you know, with dysuria has a urinary tract infection, had, had the same performance characteristics. So if there is uh, abnormal pyuria or nitrate, that correlated with finding infection, just with the same accuracy as it would in the setting of uh, urinary tract symptoms. <laughs> now, I'm not sure everybody you know, knows about that research. I can't say that it's definitive, but when I, when I see these cases and I look at the types of clues and the mistakes that are contended, I think this is sort of new knowledge that emergency physicians should be aware of. There's another risk group too. So most kidney stones occur in men, but some occur in women. And the ones that occur in women tend to occur because they've had frequent urinary tract infections. And even if they haven't had frequent urinary tract infections, the anatomy in women is different than men, um, and bacteria naturally, you know, get flushed up into the bladder and probably up higher regularly. And so, in a situation where a woman has acute has a acute nephrolithiasis and a kidney stone, there's a much greater chance that if they don't have infection, then when you see them, they'll develop it in the next weeks that it may take to pass that kidney stone. So I, my own practice, um, and you guys can comment what you think, where the standard of care falls is that um, um, I check urinalysis. I let that guide me, including along with symptoms and past history, as well as the gender of the person um, in terms of culturing and, and even giving expectant or empirical antibiotics. And if there's anything more that suggests there's an active infection, then imaging is essential to understand if you have a, a high-grade obstructing stone, and, you, and like Craig says, you need to get that urologist in immediately, or you need to get a, an interventional radiologist to percutaneously drain the kidney above the obstruction. So basically, you're uh, doing something that I think has uh, not been emphasized before, is the careful assessment of urine uh, for infection and trying to link it up with uh, symptoms and uh, a risk profile. And I must admit, in the 10 years that we've been doing this, uh, that that discussion has never come up. And yet it is, seems very, very straightforward that if you've got a, ba a bad urine, even if the person is uh, acutely um, symptomatic with just straightforward stone kind of thing, that you really have two diagnoses going on here. And uh, I would ask... What kind of frequency did this did these abnormal urines occur with? Um, not not often. Well, let's see. In in our paper, and I think there was one or two others, you find infection associated with acute nephrolithiasis in somewhere between five and fifteen percent of people who present. Mm -hmm. Now, in half of them, 
where there's infection, there's fever, but then the other half doesn't have fever. So then you're getting to, you know, other types of clues. And one of the important clues is the urinalysis finding, as well, well, as, the, as, well as the risk group in terms of going forward. Um, that's why I'm, t I'm emphasizing females with kidney stones are a problematic group. Yeah. Let me, let me uh, point out something that in most of the papers done, uh, like with your group, David, uh, most science is done at city hospitals. They're not done in suburban hospitals. They're not done with places with rapid follow-up where you can call up the urologist and see him in the morning and that sort of thing. So I think something that has to be taken into consideration in how you manage the patient is not, is not just how it's going with the rest of their life, but can they actually enter the healthcare system? I mean, David's at Olive View, which is one of the UCLA, um, one of the very tough areas. He's not at a Gin and Jaguar hospital. He He's not at Westwood, which is where Jerry was, which is more upper class people. Um, so I think that the patient that you have in front of you, you have to look at the social situation and how they can be followed up. And I, I know that I handled them a little differently at my poor people's hospital than I did at the rich people's hospital. Well, and, David... And the, I would ask, uh, do you uh, put people on antibiotics uh, prophylactically uh, in these cases, or when you have a suspicion that this urine is just not a ni nice-looking urine, and yet there's not any symptoms of fever, tachycardia, those kinds of things? Yeah, and, yeah, that's uh, what I'm saying, yeah. That's what I'm saying. So if the urinalysis is consistent with infection, they get cultured, I treat them. Um, I f those patients would be followed extremely carefully. The, the ones who otherwise look stable mm -hmm. and may not have systemic signs of infection yet. Um, uh, their culture and susceptibility tests have to be followed carefully. It's important that you're using an antibiotic that's active in vitro, and that's a, more and more of a problem these days, as you know. And then I give what would probably be called prophylactic antibiotics to people who have a history of urinary tract infections, specifically women. Um, again, that you won't find that in a textbook. Um, I can't tell you that that I don't, I wouldn't endorse that as standard of care. It's just from what I've learned. And in it, and I've thought about how you could study this more definitively. And because these problems are so rare, I think it would be a difficult uh, type of study where you could, you know, prove that this prevented urosepsis, uh, mm -hmm. you know. Yes. Uh, but it makes sense. And, you know, the risk of the antibiotics versus the risk of one of these, let's, even if it's a rare uh, type of urosepic complication, um, I, th I think uh, in balance for, for these targeted groups makes sense uh, in my mind. to, to get Yeah, it's a very uh, logical, uh, physiologic argument that uh, makes sense. It's like, why would you not do it? And uh, you could see, I think, if a person gets in trouble – uh, people criticizing you because you ignored this finding. And, um, and I must admit, it's not something that I've really ever considered, but I think you're a hundred percent right. I mean, this is a, they were trying to prevent a small number of cases from going bad and we're not even sure we know who they are yet. 
Yeah, and again, the vast majority of cases are men with acute nephrolithiasis, perfectly normal urinalysis, no past history of urinary tract infections. It's not like you have to broadly change your practice, but there's a few things I, I think to to learn from this discussion. Yep, I think I think that's absolutely right. Um, David, any more uh, any more tips on infectious disease, or should we head on to some other problems here? I, I've got some more on my list. Um, uh, let me ask you guys, have you run into problems at your departments or am among our colleagues with uh, the lab notifying the emergency department of a follow-up positive blood culture and, th and that ball being dropped and that leading <laughs> to a medical legal case? I certainly saw that in the past. Um, and I, I, you know, when the, these things come back, uh, 24 hours later and the same doctors aren't on shift, what happens is it gets put into a pile for the doctor to act upon. And he may or may not, depending on how busy he is with the rest of the department, this happens with both lab and x-ray. The last thing you want, uh, particularly in an academic hospital, is where the uh, neck film, for example, was read the night before by the resident. And now you get something then on Monday that says, uh, you know, small fracture, <laughs> C4, uh, and, uh, you know, requires further evaluation, uh, clinical correlation required. You know, I needed to know that that night, not now. <laughs> well, and, and, and I think the uh, I actually in the past have have had the biggest problem with people who had wrong phone numbers, no phone numbers, or we had to send the police out to their address to let them know that the uh, that the culture was positive. Well, you know, intrinsically, there are problems with blood cultures because they don't come back for several days and uh, there's. Uh, another doctor working the shift and somebody else has to pick up this finding and they have to respond to it. Then they have to s call up the patient and see how they're feeling and all of these other things to determine whether you need to come back or whether it's just a no big deal, you know, uh, uh, you know, strep that went, that came, uh, came in and, and cleared on its own kind of thing. So it's like, it's a pain in the butt because you wind up taking care of somebody else's patient uh, in many times. And there, there's no, there's always this gap between when they're ordered and when they came back. I think, frankly, uh, and I think this is more of a problem in the past. I hope uh, that blood cultures were done uh, just uh, too frequently. Uh, I mean, you don't need a blood culture in the patient with a pile of nephritis. It's not going to change anything, you know, in terms of your treatment and and the like. As and uh, so, I think that. That I think that's an issue. Blood cultures were uh, were done uh, too frequently, and I think in a variety of conditions, and yep. uh, it caused you this into this intrinsic problem. And uh, certainly, when the Joint Commission comes around, they're going to want to make sure that you have an ironclad system for following up uh, delayed reports, delayed CT reports, delayed uh, cultures and chemistries, and all kinds of things. And so, it can't be done on a a casual basis. It's got to be a rock solid system. And, um, well, if you here's don't what have you, one, can't you can do. get into trouble. Rick, you can't ask a question. You don't want to know the answer to, 
Because uh, if you ask a question, that's what doing a blood culture is. You got to do something with the result when it's positive. Uh, I mean, we can sit here and say, well, we ordered too many of them. And I was always very stingy about ordered blood cultures because I figured it didn't change the antibiotic selection in the vast majority of cases we were involved in. But if you're now sitting there in the department and it came back positive for strep in the blood of some kid, you cannot ignore it. You, you've got to do something with it, right, Dave? I mean, you, you can't have it sit there. Yeah, I mean, these days, the pneumococcal blood culture coming positive in a kid is rare because of pneumovax. But what we get is this. We get someone who was seen for febrile illness. Maybe the step one things led the nurses to draw and send blood cultures with all the other lactates and stuff that was supposed to be ordered to meet those recommendations. But the patient turned out to look okay and went home, and now the blood culture is sitting in the lab. And then you come on the next day, you haven't seen the patient, and there's a note from the nurse that the tech called, and you have gram-positive coccyon clusters noted on a preliminary blood culture. One of two bottles, two of two bottles, maybe it came back within 12 hours or 24 hours. And my advice to you is do not be a hero thinking you can determine which of these perhaps overly ordered blood cultures is reflecting a contaminant, which probably, you know, more often than not, it does. But um, sometimes it will actually reflect, you know, staphylococcal bacteremia. And delayed treatment of that is a big problem. Dave, I want to I present you with a with a problem which I think every emergency doc in the country deals with. And that is last year in the United States, there were two lawsuits that went against doctors for failing to order Tamiflu. uh, And the patient went on to a more serious condition. Now, my understanding is ignoring the Australian studies, which say it's no good for anything, basically. Is there a place for Tamiflu in our practice? Because I'm unaware of any study that says that the giving or not giving of Tamiflu prevents the patient from going on to a more serious condition. What's your thoughts? Oh, this is a a huge controversial issue that I'm glad you brought up because it has substantial implications to emergency physicians. So... Um, at the, and I'm going to alert everybody because uh, those of you who are emergency physicians and ASAP members may want to provide feedback to the ASAP Public Health Committee, which is presently reviewing the Infectious Disease Society of America and CDC proposed guidelines for treatment of influenza. Those guidelines give a level A evidence recommendation and endorsement to giving Tamiflu according to the existing CDC recommendations, which are very broad and state that Tamiflu should be given um, without regard to the uh, duration of, of symptoms. Okay, so even beyond 48 hours of symptom onset, which is the package insert where it's been proven to work somewhat by randomized controlled trials, that Tamiflu should be given regardless of the symptom onset in people with a long list of comorbidities, anyone with pneumonia, anyone admitted to the hospital. Despite the fact that the evidence 
supporting that is is debatable. Um, when I say it's debatable, let's just take large chunks. The Infectious Disease Society and the CDC believe there's sufficient evidence through observational studies um, to to make that recommendation. However, the World Health Organization, which is a, also a, a pretty prestigious public health agency, um, and some some particular journals, um, uh, specifically the British Medical Journal, Cochrane Review, things like that, say that no, the evidence really wasn't there, and 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 in fact, the evidence of negative studies was hidden by the manufacturer of Tamiflu, uh, who was Roche, and it was only after a prolonged public campaign was Roche basically outed and made to produce these negative results. There's a lot of controversy around this. These um, So experts battle in the literature, and at the present time, um, you know, ASAP is reviewing these recommendations. It has been my strong recommendation to them that they sort of um, either not endorse these or not endorse these unless the recommendations are, are, are sort of toned down a little bit and recognize the controversy that exists between substantial uh, professional societies and public health organizations. Because yeah. emergency physicians are being sued for not starting Tamiflu, even though there's not, in my opinion, strong evidence that it works, that it's life-saving, that it prevents serious complications, or does those things in with any likelihood in patients who are treated beyond 48 hours of symptom onset. Sorry to go on a long time. I do feel strongly about this. Well, I think, uh, I think what also is never discussed is that in teenagers particularly, uh, <clears throat> in teenagers we at least have some evidence of uh, psychological-type symptoms, neurologic symptoms, from the giving of the drug. And it's like nobody wants to recognize the fact that uh, that this symptomatology is a serious, can be a serious side effect, and physicians might be sued for giving the drug without serious thought. Most physicians in practice, many studies now when they look at Tamiflu usage, do not comply with the existing recommendations. I mean, a, a minority do. The majority do not. So... You could imagine, you know, flu, we don't even understand exactly why some perfectly healthy people, uh, you know, far less than 1% will succumb to influenza when, you know, everybody else stays home and rides it out. So we think it probably is more due to some unique interaction with the virus, with the patient's specific genetics of their immune system. In, in those cases, it's not because of lack of treatment with Tamiflu. This is completely different than, let's say, bacterial meningitis. Before antibiotics, everybody died. After antibiotics, 10 to 15% mortality. So, you know, the treatment is so important in the outcome. That, that's not what's going on here. And the studies of Tamiflu's clinical benefit really in no way are impressive to suggest that this is a life-saving drug. But where, where these cases come up, somebody dies, and they point back to the emergency physician, well, you see, you know, patient had diabetes and came in, and you diagnosed the flu, and you didn't give them Tamiflu. <clears throat> David, uh, in your experience, uh, do doctors lose most of these cases? I'm all, 
I've been on the defense of several cases, and in every case, the defense has prevailed. But I'm there. You know, there's still cases coming, and what the plaint what the plaintiff side does is they blow up the size of the courtroom. The uh, CDC recommendations, and now the, these new ones potentially that will come out, and they say, "See what this says. This says this is what should be done. That defines the standard of care. And if that wasn't done, then the emergency physician was negligent." Yeah, I, th- I think it's frightening to all of us, and um, I can't wait till I haven't seen and I have not reviewed a case yet where a family has sued because their 16-year-old boy became psychotic uh, because of the medication. But you know what? I can see where that might be coming. And uh, we, we need to be aware of the fact that, that giving and both not giving the drug have their own complications. David, did you see in New England Journal, there's a, a new uh, flu drug. It's uh, one pill that uh, was compared with uh, uh, Tamiflu, and uh, you just give the pill in the emergency department, and that uh, it's that's it. And uh, viral loads were smaller, uh, basically the same clinical uh, resolution that is attributed to uh, Tamiflu occurred with this uh, pill. This was uh, something that came out, I guess, in the last couple of weeks, and Obviously, there's no price tag on any of this stuff, but but the idea of a one pill kind of thing is, is very very appealing, and uh, it, I think that uh, once this stuff comes out, if it's reasonably priced, time flu, you'll never hear about it again. Yeah, well, well uh, that you mentioned, you know <laughs> what the price is going to be, the price of a decent single malt scotch, one shot, is probably going to be cheaper than that pill. And this pill better, it can't just show a, a, a laboratory decrease in the, in the viral uh, load. It's got to actually show that people are better. And I, th- I think we're kind of avoiding that. If you take a surrogate marker of disease, the viral flow, that has nothing to do with how well, people no, feel. Well, the idea is, is that, and the potential there is for less people in the, in the family to get the, the uh, infection. There are some, at least theoretical reasons why this may be a good idea, but the idea of a one shot pill is really kind of uh, intriguing. Hey, David, we're kind of running out of uh, time here. Can you sum up any of these other things that you'd like to kind of get across? Because I think you've mentioned some stuff that I think uh, we've never really even talked about in the past. Yeah, I, I think a couple things. Um, I notice when I when I work at all of you and I hear cases from the residents or I hear them presenting to other attending physicians, I'll hear, hear these discussions about some person who otherwise looks okay, um, they can't really find an exact source of infection, but they're wrestling with this, you know, very high white count. Let's say it's 20 23,000 or something like that. And they don't know what to do. And so they stress about, you know, should we admit the patient or give them antibiotics or, or, or is this a nonspecific finding? Um, and, and other circumstances, like let's say you tap a joint and, you know, it doesn't have 50,000 or 100,000 white cells in it, but it has 30,000, the gram stain comes back negative. You feel re- somewhat reassured, but not completely. There's many circumstances like this 
where compared to the use, that specific circumstance defines a patient who is at significantly greater risk of some type of occult bacterial infection. And for those patients who I think are unusual and they surprise us, I have come to believe that it's better to culture them up and give them some antibiotic, uh, long-acting antibiotic, and ensure that they have close follow-up then, you know, try to be some hero saying, well, this is just nonspecific inflammation. You know, I always, I have a little Jerry Hoffman. He always sits on my shoulder because <laughs> he was my, he was my mentor during my residency. And he, he always would challenge us about, uh, you know, whether we should order tests and how we should interpret them. And I hear him telling me, well, the white blood cell count, the total white blood cell count is insensitive and nonspecific. And in general, that's true. But guess what? When the white blood cell count is 23,000, it's extremely specific, right? It doesn't happen often. So, you know, it would be insensitive to, insensitive to detect most infections. But when it does happen, that confers a much greater risk to that individual patient. And so eh, I've stopped being a hero on these things. We have long-acting staph antibiotics. We have septriaxone. We have Dalbavancin, Aritavancin. It's a, basically a course of parenteral antibiotics that would last two weeks. Um, usually you can arrange some type of close follow-up, whether even if it has to be in the ER. Over the years, my approach has moved more in the direction of culturing and empirical therapy with close follow-up in those, in those situations. Well, I think that's kind of good advice because you've been basically... Uh, immersed in this um, world of infectious disease in the emergency department for so long and you've been looking at uh, it so carefully that the, if you come to the conclusion that people who may have an infection ought to be treated as if they have an infection that's uh, that's pretty uh, pretty straightforward I think and uh, I think it's I think it's good advice I mean I think what we're talking about here is medical legal cases and when you have data that suggests uh, an infection, and it turns out to be an infection, and because you deferred, because of some theoretical reason, not giving antibiotics, it's kind of like, uh, w w how would you feel if your family member basically had these signs, the doctor said, well, I couldn't find the source, but uh, so we're not going to do anything, and you get into trouble. It's like one of those things where it's, it's, it's just kind of logical. Right. Uh, David, uh, time out. <clears throat> for the person editing. Are you feeling okay? I noticed you walking around. You're not passing a stone, are you? It's an infected stone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not feeling very good. Actually, my fingers have, have become numb and pale. What's going on here? Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, we'll treat you over the, uh, over the Skype. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, back on again. Um, any more ideas or should we... Do some other thoughts here, Rick. Well, you know, actually, we uh, we we have four minutes left, man. It's time for wine of the month. Oh God, I was just uh, I was at the national meeting uh, in San Diego, which is a absolutely beautiful city, uh, some of the best weather in the world. Uh, but and and uh, people stopped to talk about risk management monthly. But as always. What I got was more complaints about wine of the month than anything we say medically, legally, uh, including someone who became hostile about 
all the American and California wines I recommend. He said, you know, that's for the plebeians. We want the really great California, the really great worldwide wines, that sort of thing. So I have one today, Rick, for you. And it's a Rhone from France, which has very, very similar characteristics to a lot of uh, Sonoma County, that sort of thing. They uh, they recommend one of the ones that I had at a, a fair out there in San Diego was an Equus, E-Q-U-I-S, and the uh, 2015 uh, Cornas uh, Rhone, which is terrific. Um, now, they haven't released, I don't know, and I haven't gotten the price on this per bottle, but if you can get a hold of this, they're willing to sell this in California, where you make a hell of a lot of wine, as I remember. They brought this stuff out, and it was uh, the hit of the table. So it's Equus 2015 Cornas, and um, I recommend it. Do you have a Parker number for this? Uh, I do not have a Parker number for it, but I well, forget promise, it. Then I promise you, if you <laughs> if you dial this one up, uh, they'll uh, well, they do have a Parker number. It's ninety four, and the problem with re- whenever you use a Parker number, you've got to remember you've got one or two people who have tasted this. That always frightens me. But uh, their rev- the Parker review of it is terrific as well. So I would uh, recommend it to all of you who are enophiles. Well, listen, Dave now lives in, in wine country. The wine country has moved south. Uh, it's not just Napa and Sonoma. It's uh, up, up north of uh, Los Angeles uh, where Dave's living. Dave, you uh, into the wine business up there? Yeah, I'm on. The, I'm a very important part of the ecosystem, the consumption end. Without me, there'd be no one who needed to grow grapes. But I do suggest that you look for wines, and you will find them on, at almost every uh, on every wine list at a very good restaurant across the United States and some places across the world uh, from the Santinez Valley, which is outside of Santa Barbara. And so you should you should look for wines from the Santinez Valley. And the best region within the Santinez Valley is called the Santa Rita Hills. So if you see labels like that, I'd encourage you to to try a bottle. The most favorite, uh, the most famous varietal is Pinot Noir. You guys all remember the movie Sideways, right? Mm-hmm. Right. That's where I live. So that uh, that will be um, a good movie to rent on Netflix or wherever before you come visit. So there's a great recommendation. So you look for Santa Inez on the carton, and uh, you will you will, you may have a good experience. They they do come in 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 boxes, don't they? Uh, <laughs> don't they <David? laughs> cases we cases of boxes with cases inside. <laughs> All right, very good. And listen, that's the December risk management monthly. Uh, David, thanks so much for uh, your time and your expertise. I don't think we could have talked to anybody in the country who has a better uh, knowledge with regards to infectious disease and the emergency department. And so we're really uh, very appreciative. Yep. And, and Gregory, thank you. As always, uh, we're signing off. Uh, David, any final words? No, just uh, thank you. And um, 
Give antibiotics. Uh, give antibiotics. <laughs> That's the bottom line. Give antibiotics. Yeah. We'll have we'll have Jerry Hoffman on next month for a counter view of this, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, again, David, you're one of my heroes in emergency medicine, and thank you very much for being with us. To all of you out there listening, we look forward to a very productive 2019. Thanks for listening, and bye for now. <laughs>